Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we, we come before you and we praise you and we thank you and, and we, we, we lift an hallelujah to you because you are great. You are awesome. You loved us before you created the world. You chose us before anything was done by us. You selected us personally. And Jesus came to secure that. He came to secure our salvation so that we would have a, a living hope. And we thank you for that. And we can't praise you enough. And we ask you right now to speak to us through your word, uh, through your servant, the Apostle Peter, as he writes this wonderful letter to, to us Christians that is so relevant for us today. Speak to us. Engage our hearts and in our, in our minds as well. And we ask this humbly in his name. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be going through First uh, Peter chapter 2. We're going to have a long portion here, so we're going to go from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 7. Okay? So I will start off by reading the uh, scripture portion. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover, for, a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if you do not, even if they do not, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectfulness and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to, to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so starting with, with verse 11, Peter starts off by addressing us as beloved. Uh, some translations have dear friends. 
I really like beloved because the actual word is, is a form of the word agape, which really the whole point of it is that God loves us. Remember, as we were talking in, in the previous weeks from the earlier part of Peter, God chose us, and he chose us why? Not for the, the good or bad things that we've done, but because he loved us. Because he loved us. So I like that. Um, he says, I urge you then. And to urge is to beseech. It's, it, it's, it's a, there are two words that can sometimes get used here. It's ask or beseech or urge. But the idea is that short of forcing your will into something, it's the idea that you're being strongly asked to do something. If you guys uh, remember Romans 12, where, where Paul does something similar, you know, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, I beseech you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. In other words, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but this is something you ought to do because of this. So this Peter's doing the same thing here. This is something we ought to do because we are loved by God. So we really should do what's going to follow next. And he calls us sojourners and exiles. Again, the idea is that we are, we are God's other chosen people. And Israel is a really good map of everything that, 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 that highlights God's faithfulness to his chosen people. What is the worst thing that could have happened to Israel? What is the worst thing that happened to Israel? Historically. What is the worst thing that can happen to any nation? It's to be conquered, right? But it's not just to be conquered. The Israelites are used to being conquered in a manner of speaking. If you guys remember in the book of Judges, the Philistines constantly conquered them. But there was a difference between when the Philistines did it and when the Babylonians did it. When the Babylonians came and conquered, they exiled the people. They, they completely destroyed Jerusalem. They com- completely destroyed the country. They scattered the people. The people were in different parts of the empire. And, and the best, the elite, were taken to Babylon. In other words, when, you, when you're conquered like that, that's pretty much the death knell of any nation. It, it, there's, that, that's basically the destruction of, 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 of that civilization. And yet... We know that Israel was not destroyed. Israel still exists even today, even after being scattered, not once, but twice. Your earlier, their, their first scattering was just a 70-year scattering. So they were gone for 70 years from their land, and then eventually they were allowed to return and started coming back. This is where we start getting the stories of, of Daniel, of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Remember in Esther... Haman almost annihilated the Jewish people. So you're talking about they were at a very vulnerable point, but yet because they were God's chosen people, God preserved them. So Peter, in in, in tying us to Israel, he's telling us this is the kind of hope that we have, that even when, when, when it looks really grim, as far as a nation is concerned, to be exiled like that, that's basically the death now. It's kind of like, like death isn't final when it comes to God. When it comes to God, it's like, well, the last thing that can be done to anybody is death. You're, you're killed. When it comes to God, there is no, that finality doesn't exist. God can do more than that. And that's what, what Peter's trying to get us to understand, that we as his people, we have God working on our behalf. Even when it looks bad, even when... These first Christians that, that Peter's writing to specifically, they're in, in Asia Minor. They've been kicked out of their, their home territories. And now they're in other territories that are not very friendly to them. And even then, he's telling you, God loves you. You're his chosen people. You're his special nation. You're, you're his royal priesthood. So he's telling us then to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. Uh, to abstain means to, 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 um, to keep away from, to, to stay away from. The way I like to think about it is Jesus is not our co-pilot. He is the driver of our car. Jesus is a, the driver of the car that is our lives. When we refuse to abstain... 
I think of it as us interfering with Jesus' driving. We're trying to get a hand on that steering wheel, and we're not letting Jesus take us to where we need to. The nice thing is that Jesus is in control, and he's going to get us to where we need to go. The downside is that every time we interfere with that, we slow down the arrival time. We slow down when we're going to get to that point that Jesus is trying to take us to. When we don't abstain from sin, that is what we're doing. We're interfering with with letting Jesus do what he wants to do in us. It says passions of the flesh. Another word for that would be uh, desires or lust. They all come from the same uh, idea. And the idea is here is that the flesh waging war against the soul. The idea is that the devil can't get us because we belong to God. But he can do a lot of things. He can slow down our growth. He can prevent our, our usefulness for the kingdom. So when he does these things, he, he, uh, he hampers our growth. He hampers our development, and he hampers our usefulness for the kingdom. And when it talks about soul, it's not talking about like just your spirit portion. It's kind of like, you know, oh, you poor soul. When you call somebody your poor soul, you mean you, the person. So here soul is not trying to make a distinction between this or that, you know, just your, the salvation is your soul. It's basically the salvation of you. So, you know, the, the passions of the flesh work against our salvation. So we don't want that to be the thing. So we have to abstain from them. We have to keep away from them. Uh, it says keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And Gentiles here, just to be clear, now, he's writing to Gentile Christians, so in the context here that he's talking about Gentiles, he's basically referring to the pagans. In other words, the other Gentiles who are not Christians. So he's telling them that even in this context of being among these Gentiles, we have to live in a way that is honorable so that they can't say anything against us, so that there's nothing that can distract from the gospel that we're supposed to be representing from the kingdom that we're supposed to be representing, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is basically just a a fancy Old Testament way of saying the day of God's judgment. Um, I got it somewhere else in my notes, but... Yeah, it's Isaiah 10.3 and Jeremiah 27.22 use that, that phrase of the day of visitation. And that has to do with the day of God's judgment. So the idea is that people will glorify God on that day. If you guys recall Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, so it's probably verses 10 and 11 where it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody's going to glorify Jesus at some point. Okay? So this is why it's important and, and that Peter is urging us to, to abstain from these passions. And so he tells us one thing, don't do this, you know, abstain from the bad stuff, but do this, maintain a good testimony, is what he's telling us. Maintain a good testimony. The next portion says, be subject for the Lord's sakes to every institution, whether the emperor or as supreme or governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That phrase there, for the Lord's sake, we do this because God is asking us to do this. We do this because God has asked us to do this. Paul writes something very similar to this in Romans chapter 12. He says, submit to the government because the government has been given the sword by God to maintain order in society. That's in in, uh, Romans chapter 13. Peter here is writing the same thing. You know, we are to respect our our governing authorities. We are supposed to respect government. Um, And again, as a general rule, and keep in mind, when the Bible is saying that, the Bible is saying that as a general rule. But I want us to also keep certain things in, um, in mind. If you guys remember the story of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, you know Habakkuk was, was bothered because of the wickedness that was going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. But then he was bothered more when he found out how God was going to punish that corruption in the northern kingdom of Israel. 
So, you know, there's the northern kingdom of Israel. When Israel split into two kingdoms, the south was called Judah. The north was called Israel. Israel, all the kings were wicked. Judah had a bunch of good kings, but some that weren't so good. That's why Judah lasted longer than, than Israel. The, the, uh, Israel was conquered by the Assyrians earlier than Judah was, later by the Babylonians. The thing was that that was the thing that bothered uh, Habakkuk. God was sending the Assyrian nation to conquer them. And Habakkuk is like, God, what are you doing? I know that Israel is bad, but Assyria is worse. Assyria is worse. You're sending bad guys to punish us. You see, God uses even wicked nations. See, wicked nations think that God is not using them to further what God has already planned for history. But God is using them. God is using Chairman Mao, even though Chairman Mao is working against God in every way, you know, between atheism, between imprisoning Christians, and and everything that the communist revolution has done in China. God is using it. And I know it doesn't sound comforting from our side of eternity, but God is using or used Fidel Castro in Cuba for whatever purposes he had. He used Stalin in Russia. And these sound like horrible things. But the truth of the matter is, in those societies, there is a sense, at least for, in spite of all the injustice, there is a stability, is there not? There is a sense of, of, of law and order. It's not a complete uh, Wild West scenario there where any, everybody's killing everybody. Sadly, it's the government killing people, but they do maintain a certain stability for the people. And, and again, it, it's, it's a rough thing to think about, but I also want us to keep in mind when Peter and Paul wrote what they wrote, because they wrote around the same time. And they're writing when the Roman Empire has never been very friendly to, to Christians. And eventually, especially in the time of Peter and Paul, it was really bad to the point that both Peter and Paul were executed by the same Roman government. But yet they're telling us, submit to the government authorities. Submit to these government authorities. In Acts chapter 4, there was a story, and you guys might remember this, where Peter and John healed a guy. And the Sanhedrin basically took them to trial and... They were afraid that oh, if we do anything to Peter and Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter and John, you know, they saw the miracle. People are going to kind of, you know, get all, you know, in a tiff. What are we going to do? So what did they tell them? Uh, well, you guys, you guys can go, but you guys can't talk about this Jesus anymore. You can't talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter then answers, um, Peter and John answer, you know, we can't stop talking about Jesus. You can, do, you can decide for yourselves what you're going to do with us, but we're not going to stop talking about Jesus. There comes a point where we submit to government and everything that does not go against God. When it's against God, we do not submit to that. But here's where submission comes into play. We accept the consequences of that. The Bible has given us many examples of that. In Daniel chapter 4, we have the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you guys remember what happened there? Nebuchadnezzar makes his, uh, his golden statue and he wants everybody worshiping it. They refuse to bow. Because this is one thing, you do not submit to something like that. They refuse to bow. And yet, they were willing to accept the consequences of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's sentence. They were respectful. If you look at the narrative, they were respectful. Oh, king, you know, we, we just can't do that. We can't do that. And they didn't know that God was actually going to save them from the fire. If you guys look at the story carefully, they're saying, even if our God doesn't save us, they, they didn't think God was going to save them. They thought they were going to be martyred right there and then. Praise God that didn't happen, and we have a great story for us to, to inspire us. But if you think about it, for every Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are millions more who don't survive those fires. But the point is, we all have to be willing even if we don't survive those physical fires, to go through them. Daniel, just a couple chapters later in chapter 6, the decree was given that he couldn't worship God. They, they made that decree on purpose, knowing that Daniel couldn't help himself to worship God. 
So Daniel was, was in the situation where, you know what? They can do whatever they want with me. I'm going to still worship God. And he worshiped God. And he was respectful of the king, and he accepted the consequences. And once again, God delivered him. But again, God doesn't always deliver us on a physical level. Deliverance doesn't always come in that form. And these are examples that are given to us so that we know that no matter what happens, we accept the consequences. It's not for us to be in open rebellion. That's not what, what, what we're taught. We're taught to be submissive to governing authorities. Um, I don't know what we're going to face in the coming years, we Christians in this country, as the culture becomes more and more hostile towards us. You know, um, oh, what's the name of that, that baker's that had that uh, masterpiece or was it masterpiece cake shop or something like that? I can't remember the name of it. Where the where the guy refused to make a, a cake for a, 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 a same sex um, marriage, and and he and he was he, he was like I can't do this, this violates my my conscience, you know more and more. And he's been in in constant litigation, even though he's won that ruling and that ruling went in his favor. Another there's another group of people in the wings, ready to come after him. There was one about a flower shop. Similar to the to that cake shop, but in that flower shop one, she lost her business, and I believe she stood to lose her home as well. The culture is becoming increasingly anti-Christian. It's becoming more and more hostile, and we're going to be facing more and more of these things. We have to still submit to government authorities. We we do the things the right way through the right channels, but we have to be ready that this culture is going to be after us. You know, and this is some of the things that, again, they were facing this in Peter's time. They were already starting to see this happen. Now we're starting to see it happen. So we are still supposed to be respectful always. And we do this for the Lord's sake. God is our incentive for doing this. For this is the will of God, it goes on to say in verse 15. This is God's will. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. There's a lot in that. No matter how free we are, no matter how free any of us is, we are all slaves to something. If you guys remember when Jesus talked about, come to me all you who are heavy burdened and laden and I will give you rest. You guys remember that? Keep this in mind. You're still yoked. The only difference is that one yoke is lighter and the other one is heavier. Freedom always has a yoke as well. It's a light yoke, but there's always a yoke. And it's better than the alternate yoke, which is heavy. It says, that, uh, it says that we are free, and we are free people, and we're not to use our freedom to sin. Sin is no longer our master. If you guys recall from Romans chapter 6, Paul writes extensively about this. When we, when we join Jesus in his death and resurrection, we have died to sin and have been raised to a new master. Sin was our former master, not anymore. Now Jesus is our master. The problem with us as as Christians, as people sometimes, is that we still live in a way that makes people think that sin is our master. Whenever we choose not to follow God, whenever we, uh, we use our freedoms, if you will, for the wrong thing, we are essentially telling people that my master is still sin, even though that should not be the case. Because sin is not our master, and we shouldn't live in a way where sin looks to be our master. And again, the thing there where it says servants, most translations actually use the word slave, and I feel that the word slave, I understand the connotations it has for a lot of people, but the truth of the matter is we have to look at this for what it is. Slaves, basically, there's different types of slaves in the Bible. This one is oikidi, something like that, which is different than a doula servant, but bottom line is you know, there was slavery in, in the time of the Bible. 
So the imagery of slavery was a good way to convey something. So the thing is, we are God's slaves, and God is a good master. So the idea is that we serve a good God. Okay? And the idea to honor everyone. Honor everyone means to recognize them, to acknowledge them, to see their worth. That's what it means to honor them. So when it says honor everyone, it means that you see their worth. Why do we see worth for everyone? Why do we see value to people? Because we're all valued by God. We're valued by God. But why are we valued by God? Hmm? We're his children. But more importantly, it's also the fact that we are created in his image. Everybody is an image bearer of God. So in other words, when he's saying everyone, he means everyone. Everyone needs, because one of the things that would happen, and we'll get into this a little bit too as we keep, keep going on, especially in, this, in their times, you got to remember, this is a world that was not Christianized the time when Peter was writing this. We live in the aftermath of a Christianized world, so to speak, in the sense that Christian culture has been, at least people have been exposed to Christian culture. This is the beginning of the exposure to Christian culture, and it hasn't spread yet. It's spreading, but it hasn't spread yet. So the idea is that people didn't always value people. Women were considered less valuable than men. Slaves were not even considered full people. There's a lot of that going on. If you were a different nationality, you were seen less. If you had a handicap, the Greeks were notorious for this. If a child was born with a deformity, they would leave the child, either they would throw the child off the cliff or they would leave it in the forest to his fate. You guys know what happens there. The kid's going to die. There was, there was not that value. There was not that honor. As Christians, we have to honor everyone. It says, love the brotherhood. Peter calls our attention that we need to be that much more purposeful, especially with the brotherhood of faith. Okay? So he's not saying... Oh, well, you know, love the brothers but hate everybody else. No, he's telling you, honor everyone. We value everybody's worth. But he's also calling us to especially love the brotherhood. In other words, the church. Love the church. Love Christians. Fear God. Fear God. And Peter, earlier, as we were studying in the previous week, he talks about when it comes to fearing God, it's, 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 he's the only one that, that is worthy of, uh, of worship. So we fear God of, of complete reverence. God alone. And he goes, honor the emperor. Again, the same idea. You respect his position. You respect his worth. Especially in this particular case, you, you're respecting his title. You respect that. In verse 18, he... he so in that part, he's talking to people in general. Then he kind of uh, goes into 18 where now he's talking in a, in a work setting. So he starts off, again, servants. Some translations will have it, and I prefer slaves because I know, again, it's connotations, but we, I think it helps us to really understand what it is. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not, not only just to the good ones, but also to the bad ones is what he's telling you there. The idea is, remember earlier he's telling you to honor everyone and respect everyone? Well, he's telling us the same thing here again, but now in a work setting. As we do this in, in government and in society, we also do this in our work setting. And I like what one commentator said. This also applies to teachers, uh, bureaucrats. <laughs> when we go to the DMV, we got to listen to them bureaucrats. We got to respect them. They mean. Although I have to tell you this, I went uh, like two weeks ago to the DMV, and they've gotten a lot nicer. <laughs> They have gotten a lot nicer. I remember when my mom used to take us when we were younger. They were the rudest, meanest, most uneducated people who just happened to have that political connection, but I digress. Anyways, so we, we have to honor these people, okay, uh, our bosses, okay? And I'm, I'm telling you this, this, this one especially hits me because this is like if there's one area where I have the biggest grief in, it's not so much... Marriage, it's not so much the kids, well, it's not so much the kids, it's work. Work is the challenge. Work is always a challenge. 
Um, it is hard to work with certain people. It really is. It is very difficult to work with certain people. But this is what God is calling us to. He's telling us to, 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 to be subject even to those bad masters. Even to those bad employers. Again, he does says the same something very similar. Earlier he says, for the Lord's sake and for this is God's will. Here he says, mindful of God. For this is a gracious thing when you suffer, mindful of God, and you're enduring this unjust suffering. We talked about this in the previous weeks, that Peter here is especially hitting the idea of suffering that is not deserved, suffering that is not earned, suffering simply because we are who we are as Christians. So we get this unfair treatment. And he talks about that. What good does it do if you're suffering, but you kind of had it coming, so to speak? If you're doing something that, if I'm uh, constantly uh, doing something like, um, you know, walking away from my workstation and then I, I get kind of like hassled by the boss, I kind of had it coming. Now, if I'm doing my work and I'm doing it well and I'm still being hassled by the boss, there's a difference. So he's telling us that, that we need to endure these things. For t- to this, well, verse 21, man, and, and they just, it just doesn't let up. For to this you have been called. I've been called to this. I'm like, wait a minute. Was that in the fine print? Was that in the fine print? Yeah. He says that when we were called, we were called to suffer these things because this is what Christ did. Okay, Christ also suffered, and he gave us an example. And Jesus is a, is, is a great model of suffering under unfair people. Think about Jesus' mock trial. He stayed quiet. He took beatings from, from the Romans. He, he was crucified. Not, and so it's not just a death, it's a criminal's death. And it's and, and, and it's a, it's a death that, besides torturing you and killing you, it's also meant to shame you. This is what Jesus did. He hung on that cross and he stayed quiet. And the only time he spoke it was to say phrases like "Father, forgive them." So we have an example in Jesus about unjust suffering. And Peter really, really goes out of his way. To, to uh, explain this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Remember, Jesus had the power. He had the authority. He's the Son of God. To call a legion of angels to free him. He had the, the ability to call angels to wipe out all his enemies. Remember the temptation when, when he was in the wilderness and the devil told him that, um, hey, throw yourself. Angels will come in and get you. Jesus says that's not what it says. Even though the truth is that the angels would have came for him. Jesus did not exploit his, his, his power, his authority, and he suffered for us. He suffered during that temptation, and that prepared him for what he was going to suffer in the future here. You see? And he suffered. He, there was no deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, but he, he entrusted himself to whom? To him who judges justly. In other words, he trusted himself to God, the Father. And this is the example that he's setting for us. Trust ourselves and trust ourselves to God when we go through these kinds of sufferings. Uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And once again, Peter's big on this. We die from something and we're saved for something, right? We are saved from something and for something. We're saved from sin and we're saved for righteousness. And Peter makes a big thing about driving that point home. Okay? He goes that, and he reminds us that we were like sheep straying away from God, but he's our shepherd and he takes care of us because we are his. Then we move on to chapter 3 and it starts off, likewise, wives. 
And we're going to stop there right there. Likewise. Likewise to what? Well, the last thing that he was talking about was the model of Jesus, of being submissive and suffering unjustly. So he's telling wives to be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey. In other words, he's saying, even if these husbands are non-Christians, what could have happened here? They married, they were Christian, they married a non-Christian, or they were already married and they became a Christian. Whatever the scenario is, the fact is they have an un- a husband who's not a Christian. And, he's, and, and Peter's telling them, honor your husbands. Submit to them. You would not expect that, but this is the kind of thing that the Bible does. It flips the, the scripts on, on their heads. So he's telling the wives to submit to husbands, even the ones that are not saved, with the hope that they may be won without a word by the, the conduct of the wives. Now, the idea here isn't that you know, we can win people over without ever saying a word. You know, Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. But the idea is that it's not about just ta- telling them about Jesus. It's about showing them Jesus. And one of the best ways to show Jesus is by living like he did. Jesus had a hard life. He's a man who, who lived as a poor man, and then he was unjustly convicted and tried and murdered. And he suffered a lot in his life on our behalf. He gave up his heavenly treasures, his, his heavenly comforts to live among us, and not even as a king, but as a peasant. So Jesus suffered a lot. And this is the model that we have to kind of all take. So he's talking here to wives specifically, though. So he's talking wives, submit to your husbands. And, and he goes, so that when they see you, they, they see your respectful and pure conduct. And he goes, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on a gold jewelry or clothing you wear. And I'm like thinking, okay, where did that come from? He goes from, from women... Respect your husbands, even non-Christian ones, to about, now it's talking about adorning the external. Because one of the reasons, and I think this is very important, especially if you guys think about Proverbs, uh, I believe it's Proverbs 3 through 5. One of the things that, let's face it, let's not be oblivious to this reality. There is a battle of the sexes. There's always this, this fight for control. And what Peter's telling wives here is that, look, as tempting as it is, to try to gain the upper hand by, let's face it, how many times have women not seduced men to do things? Historically, we know this. Women have used their feminine wiles to get world leaders, celebrities, to do things that they ordinarily wouldn't. You know, beauty in the hand of a woman is a powerful weapon. And he's telling the women here, the wives here, don't do that. Do it the right way. Be respectful. Okay? Don't try don't turn this into a, a power struggle. Okay? But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So he's telling them to work, to do so again by humility, by submission. The problem is that the word submission has been so maligned in our world today. That word is so maligned, and it's totally contrary to, to the biblical concept of submission. Um, and then he uses the example of Sarah, Abraham's wife. He says that that's, If you guys remember the story about Sarah, there was like at least two incidents in Genesis where they were staying in a foreign place, and then Abraham tells Sarah, tell them you're my sister. Tell them you're my sister. I don't get it, personally. I really take this story by faith. How can an 80-something-year-old be that hot that kings uh, want you that badly? But all, I think that, that helps to augment and highlight that she must have been a fox of a woman, this Sarah. So she was this gorgeous woman that king wanted and it happened not once, but at least twice, if I remember correctly. But bottom line is the fact that later, so the king uh, takes uh, Sarah in, thinking that, okay, it's this dude's sister, hey, fair game. 
And then later he gets the vision in a dream that if you even touch that woman. And then it's like, why would you lie to me, man? Why didn't you just tell me she was your wife? Well, she is my sister. Well, back then it was OK to marry your half sisters. But um, it was still the fact that he did it with the intent of, of uh, deception, though. He was protecting his own skin. <laughs> That's what he was doing. Oh, man, Abraham. I mean, you know, I could criticize him, but I probably would have done the same thing, too, if I was in his shoes. Um, The fact of the matter is Sarah was beautiful, but she never used her beauty to try to outmaneuver Abraham, is what what Peter's saying here. She, in fact, does something contrary. She actually calls Abraham Lord. She submits to him. And he's saying that this is a model for all women to follow. That all, not women, wives. And that's the other thing. I want to, I say women, but it's wives. It's in the context of wives. The Bible doesn't teach that women need to submit to men. The Bible teaches that wives need to submit to husbands. And I think that that's also been a, a source of confusion in, in the power struggle, too. Because uh, for too, off, too long, too many people have, uh, people always like to misuse scripture for convenience. Okay, so the Bible's talking about in the marriage context. In the marriage context, women's wives, see, they got to keep correcting myself. Wives submit to your husbands. Okay? But then he goes on in verse 7, he goes, likewise, husbands. Again, likewise is going back to the model of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus suffered, but he was also, he was also a Lord. Was he not? So the example now that men have is we have to look at Jesus as a model as well. So the model for men, though, isn't because of the suffering per se, but it's more that the compassion of Jesus. Jesus has compassion over the church. That's why Paul writes that husbands need to love their wives like Christ loved the church. That's a tall order. What did Jesus do? Even to the point of dying for her on the cross. Husbands, on the contrary, need to be sacrificial. They need to be sacrificial. So if a husband loves his wife like Christ loved the church, submission for a wife will be easier. But even so, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter here is telling the wives that even if the husbands are not saved, you know, do this. Because... And he's telling the husbands, I want you to be considerate. I want you to be compassionate. He goes, showing honor, again, recognizing the woman's worth, the wife's worth, as the weaker vessel. And the idea here, I, I heard uh, it taught that it's the idea of like, fine china is valuable. And I'm like, that's cool. I'm not sure 100% that that's what this is saying per se. It is talking about the, the physical reality that, that women are physically weaker than men, and men should be considerate. It's kind of like, to take it in another example, when you have a baby, do you not treat the baby with more care and gentleness? Only because they're in a vulnerable, more, we know they are physically weaker. In the same sense, women are physically weaker, but it's not a call for, for husbands or men to be exploitive of women. That's never been the biblical model. When God created man and woman in his singular image, he created both of them in his image. Not one and not the other one. Different. He created them both equally his image. So he's telling you to consider this. I was doing some interesting um, research on on this. So, um, you know, as you guys know, my wife is doing the marathon. I've done marathons in the past, so you know, I kind of know a little bit about marathons, not nearly enough as I should, all things considered. But one of the things I was, uh, a fun fact about the marathon, the fastest men finished the marathon in, in a two hours, in just a few minutes, I mean, a two hour, two minutes, two hour, five minutes, usually the fastest men finish in that time. The fastest, the best woman time, okay, the number one time, and I don't know how current this is, but it's got to be more or less around this range. The best woman time is two hours and 14 minutes and four seconds. That is the fastest woman. Okay, so the fastest men 
are 202, 203, 204, 205, 206, 207, 208, 209, down to 213, still faster than the fastest woman. So right there, you have at least... Uh, Easily 12 minutes faster than, than the fastest woman. But I did some more research. Turns out that there are officially ranked, there are 3,738 men who are faster than the fastest woman. I didn't know that. I was like staggered when I saw that. I thought it was just going to be like a couple thousand, like maybe a couple hundred. I didn't expect it to be. Boy, was I off. Okay, the idea is men are physically stronger than women. We know that. That does not make women any less worth than a man. Okay? It's, it's more biology. But Peter's point is that, that submission is not merely about power. Jesus had power over the Romans who crucified him. And again, he chose not to annihilate them. Uh, Jesus submits himself to the Father, the Bible teaches us. But Jesus is equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. In John 10.30, Jesus claimed equality with the Father. So here's Jesus and the Father are equal, and yet Jesus submits to the Father. So it's not a question about who's worth more. Jesus is not worth more than the Father, and the Father is not worth more than Jesus, nor, is, nor, nor the Spirit. They're not having like a, a, a free-for-all fight to see who's the best. They're not having a popularity contest between the three of them. They are all equal. Yet, the Son and the Spirit submit to the Father. So it's not about worth. And it's not about power. Okay, and that's kind of one thing that I want us to understand. Because again, submission gets thrown around. Submission is not about power. It's about function. And about an order. God likes doing things orderly. He created the man first, and he did it with the intent of, of making a lesson. Therefore, uh, as a model so that we have a way to, to run things, this is how we do it. It's more for the, the idea of a function in order so that this can work a certain way. Wives submit to husband. Children submit to parents. Slaves submit to masters. You see? It's all about function and order. It's not about that you're more valuable than not. And uh, another thing that I think is worth mentioning here that I didn't mention earlier is this. You guys notice in, this, in the portion where it talks about slaves, it didn't address the masters? It didn't address masters. And there was a, a very key reason for that. Because since Christians were generally in a very subordinate position in their societies, most Christians were rarely masters themselves. There were Christians that were masters. You guys remember the, the letter to Philemon? Philemon's basically just a one-chapter book in the Bible. Probably a one-pager for most. Philemon was, was, a runaway, uh, was, was a master of slaves. He was actually one of those few rich Christians who had slaves, who was a slave owner. Okay, now, mind you, slavery in the Bible is not something that God ever condoned. Slavery was just the way of the world as it was, and the Bible was just kind of like, well, we're, we're going to operate under this system, so let's just, work, let's just work with it, okay? So the Bible never condones slavery, and I want that to be clear. Um, but it was the system of the world long before Christianity ever even came in the scene. It was just basically the most commonly used economic system, from the slavery that was used to build the pyramids to to what the ones that were used to build the Roman empires and sadly even our, our, our great nation, slavery was used. It was just a reality of the world. However, Christianity, by, by t saying that everybody was equal worth, actually planted the seeds for the destruction of slavery as it, the way it was practiced back when. So actually Christianity, it is all the early abolitionists, not most, all the early abolitionists, that is the people who fought against slavery, all of them were Christian, or Christian-influenced, at the very least. Christianity brought about the end to slavery as an institution. But in the time that the Bible was written, it was the common, a, a very common workplace situation. It had been a common sit workplace situation for thousands of years up to the point when this was written. And it lasted only two more thousand years after that. See, so if anything, when you consider the history of the world, the thousands of years before Christ... 
and in the 2,000 years after Christ, slavery actually kind of basically came to an end. Actually, tells you Christianity really helped to end slavery. Um, the Bible recognized that slavery existed, but it actually worked to redeem it by 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 telling Philemon. He tells Philemon to treat Onesimus, the runaway slave. He told him to forgive him, and not only that, but to treat him as a brother. Now, we don't know this a hundred percent, but I think we're we're at about 99 percent in the first century or, the, or go into early in the second century. There was a, I believe, one of the elders of the church of Ephesus was a guy named Onesimus. And it is believed that it is the Onesimus from the book of Philemon, who became an elder in the church of Ephesus later. I thought that was a pretty cool, fun fact. It'd be cool if it turns out to be true. But, you know, still, the fact is that in Christianity, women and men were equal. Just because there's the function of, the, of uh, husbands and wives in the home, Women and men are equal. Slaves and masters are equal. And as far as why the Bible addresses husbands and wives, well, by definition, if you're a wife, you have to have a husband, right? But just because you're a a slave, the master doesn't necessarily have to be a Christian. You see, and that was the thing, that most were not. Very few were Christian slave. And there there were Christian slave owners. There were. But again, Christianity actually helped bring an end to the institution of slavery. And I think that that's a very, very cool point that oftentimes gets um, ignored just because um, people like to be selective in their history studies. Let me really quick here. So in summary, life is filled with, with unjust suffering. Being in submission is almost like asking for unjust suffering. But Peter reminds us that we were called to suffer. Nevertheless, being mindful of God for the Lord's sake, for God's sake and the gospel's sake, to not be a distraction from the gospel, we as Christians, we submit. Uh, To submit means to yield, to defer. We do this because Jesus is our model. We do this because we trust God. Peter didn't start off this letter by telling, uh, by telling us that Christ is our living hope for nothing. He tells us that Christ is our living hope to give us that incentive to put up with the suffering that we're going to have to, have to deal with. He doesn't remind us of our new identity as God's chosen people for nothing. He tells us this for a reason, because we need to be reminded. There is going to be that day of vindication. Our suffering is temporary. It's temporary. And and unjust suffering and opposition are part of the package that we have to deal with as Christians. Whether in society at large, at work, or at home, or in the marriage, or whether we need to be be prepared to suffer and exercise consideration. Uh, This may not be the message we wanted to hear per se, but it's definitely the message that we need. And this has been Masterclass Theology. Thank you for, for listening and God bless.